A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, this is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And before we get into today's topic, we continue, I'll continue with uh, describing what I did in the previous episode, the uh, audio intro. We'll go for the next three this time in our audio intro and our ongoing explanation of the different uh, audio clips that introduce every episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And I got a lot of feedback from the first uh, installment. So here's the second installment. We're up to number four. Number four is me describing um, the founding of Beis Yaakov and the Dafyomi, which are two uh, dominant movements uh, that were that were part of the Renaissance of uh, religious life in interwar uh, Jewish Poland to infuse traditional Jewish life with new New Direction, New Movement, Girls' Education, Dafyomi was a universal learning cycle, which both movements, of course, continue till today. And in the context that I was discussing was the involvement of the Ger Rebbe in enabling their spread. Although Beis Yaakov and Dafyomi were founded by Sarah Shanir and Rameir Shapiro, respectively. But the Ger Rebbe, the Mariamis, the Rav Mordechai Alter, who was the undisputed leader, uh, traditional Torah leader of uh, interwar Jewish Poland, so he was involved. I believe, if I remember correctly, I believe that the clip was taken from a live tour I was doing in Poland, in Ger, specifically standing in front of the uh, base Medrash in the Chatzar of, of Ger. Um, the next clip was from a very tragic episode in modern Jewish history in the 1972 Munich Olympics. Um, and uh, like uh, Charles Dickens said, so it was the best of times and the worst of times. Uh, Mark Spitz, a Jewish uh, um, uh, uh, American, uh, won seven gold medals, which uh, until Michael Phelps came along was a world record. And, uh, you know, brought this from in swimming. On the other hand, a much more tragic episode took place at the same Olympics uh, when the Israeli Olympic team was held hostage by Palestinian terrorists and eventually were killed. Eleven Olympic team members are a terrible story and really a whole a lot of details and a whole... Uh, I mentioned in in, um, in one in one episode, I mentioned the Operation Grapes of Wrath or something like that, 
when the Mossad is revenge on the Palestinian terrorists. The next clip is Reb Chaim Elazar Shapiro, the Minchas Elazar, one of the greatest Hasidic leaders in Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Kar- uh, um, um, uh, Karpatorus, uh, in, in the, again in the uh, World War I, post-World War I time, and he had an only child, Chaya Frimarivka, and she got married in 1933 to Rav Baruch also discussed in an episode about Rav Baruch Rabinovich and about Munkach, and by that wedding, which is a very prominent uh, wedding, and there was a foreign film team there who covered both the wedding and life in in Jewish Munkach at the time. We have a lot of a lot of footage about Munkach. About, there's about the Zionists in Munkach, and there, there's a cheder in Munkach, and, and business, and the economy, and schools, and all kinds of things because of this media coverage of the wedding. So we were privileged to have lots of uh, video footage from pre-war Munkach. In 1933, and there, the, the Minchas Elazar was informed that his audience can is in the United States, and they can see this is a TV camera, and it's being broadcast, and there's sound, and you could see it, and they could hear it. So, what message do you have for the Jewish people in the United States? And he cries out, "Zuman hiten Shabbos." They should keep Shabbos, and that's what you hear in that audio clip: is the Minchas Elazar talking to the Jews of America in 1933 to uh, keep Shabbos, which would ensure the continuity of the Jewish people. So that's those three clips. We move on before I get to today's topic, which is Rav Aaron Leib Steinman in honor of his, I think it's his third or fourth yard site already. Um, get a little bit, we got a, a tremendous feedback from the episode I did on Itchri and Rav Mordechai Elephant. Um, more than usual, a very, very, got a lot of good feedback, also from the most recent, the tribute to the Mashgiach, Rabbi Chadash, but I want to focus on the letters that I got from the Rabbi Mordechai Elephants. I'm going to read several letters. Here's one. I learned in Shar HaTayra in its early years, and when Rabbi Mordechai Elephant would come visit, I would stay up all night with him to prepare his shear, which was quite an experience. Another famous name of one of his hem- employees was of the Chadera Itri branch, and it was Rabyankala Galinsky, the famous student of Navardic. I remember hearing another form of his receiving grants for the yeshiva. He claimed he was doing skin cancer research when the Kailal was learning Nagaim and was able to receive a grant as a result. Other prominent uh, personalities who had stints in Itri were Wolf Tukutsky and Rabzev Hoberman. So that's one letter, again, good additions. And here's another one. Here it goes. I was a Talmud from 1971 through 1974 in both Yerushalayim and Chadera. The names and places and personalities have left an indelible mark on my life. There were 250 Talmudim in Yerushalayim during my two years there, of which 70 were American. Most of the Israelis were from Yeshivot Tichoniot, which is, you know, yeshivas that had secular studies in high school who made the very difficult choice of not going to the IDF, which was expected of them in their circles. Sometimes there were parental objections to that choice. There was a significant number of Sephardim who were top caliber. The choice of Ivrit was due to this student body to whom Yiddish was not familiar. The Americans were from Yeshiva University, Skokie, Beis Yehuda in Detroit, and St. Louis, Rabbi Naftali Hirschfeld. Yiddish would have been a challenge to the American crowd too. 
Rabbi Elifun made this point to us very clearly. Um, he says here another one, he continues the letter. Um, he says that uh, Rabbi Nassim Kamenetsky was, was in, in the Beis Talmud days with Rabbi Elephant. Rabbi Mordechai Elephant in those days was a terrible insomniac, and he still was during my years in Itri. He posted a sign in Beis Talmud that he would pay $5 an hour to anyone who would learn Kutchim with him from midnight until 5 a.m. So Rabbi Nassim Kamenetsky, who was a bacher in Beis Talmud at the time, would sleep all afternoon so as to stay up and make the money. And that was the beginning of their relationship. Rabbi Shlomo Fisher never gave a shmuz in the yeshiva. He was a shaylo meshiv and gave a chabur to select talmidim. The, the going rumor was that he was far too Zionistic in thinking to be trusted with a shmuz. Seems to fit the rumors that you mentioned that swirled around Rabbi Elephant himself. Rabbi Shlomo was a Torah giant of wide erudition. The Americans appreciated that, and he loved to ask the college graduates what they had studied. I believe that the couple's infertility may have contributed to his outsized drive to build and build and build. I was young then, but clearly sensed his obsessive personality. That's another fantastic letter, added a lot to the picture. And here's another one, a great story, which was heard from Reb Nassim Kamenetsky about Reb Mordechai Elephant. Not long after the Six-Day War, the miraculous campaign in which the Israeli De- Israel Defense Forces liberated Jerusalem, and all of its surrounding areas did a wealthy and influential yeshiva dean, meaning Rabbi Elephant, purchase a former Jordanian army base from the Israeli government. His intent was to develop an independent yeshiva camp as a community. He would build a large base medrash and develop the land into a community that would be home to young couples who would begin their lives studying Torah. The former barracks, which were once used to house enemy soldiers, would now house young men studying Torah tracts. After negotiating a deal with the government in which he would have full autonomy over the land, the dean of the new institute held dedication ceremony to which he invited a certain army officer, Ben Uzi. The officer was afforded his request to speak at the ceremony. Standing atop a hill, he looked around the, at the vast campus and declared to the assembled crowd, Translation, can you imagine? Just a few months ago, all of this was theirs. Now it is ours, he declared. Ramorche Elephant uh, stood up and interjected, Ben Uzi, atatoeh. You are mistaken. It's not ours, it is mine. Very, also very typical of a Mordechai elephant. Here's another one. I grew up in Kew Gardens until the end of second grade. My father was learning in Chavetz Chaim, and we davened at Shar HaTorah and Shabbos. I recall my father and his friends referring to Shar HaTorah as Itri. I never heard them calling it Shar HaTorah in those years. And at the time, I didn't get why, and only found out in recent years. And that's just how it was referred to. Um... And one last one, again, there's so many good ones, I'm skipping a bunch here, uh, which I want to get on to Rav uh, Steinman, he's waiting. Here's one last letter. Um, there are many chashva faculty at Itri whom you did not have time to mention, but the mashgiach of Binyamin Zilber certainly deserves recognition. When my first son was born in 1970, I was instructed to invite Rav Elephant to be Sandik, but to understand that the Rosh Hashiva would turn down the invitation since he never accepted Sandikos. The next stop was the Mashgiach, Rabbi Yamin Zilber. It was El during which he would spend the entire month in his Baidudus, in a small house on the campus. Nevertheless, he accepted to be Sandik. Um, the Mashgiach came to our little Itri Kolal apartment in Romeima, where the bris and the Suda were held and set over a Dvar Taira, which I remember clearly to this day. The Rebetzin, Rebetzin Elephant, 
um, who I mentioned in the, parenthetically, who I mentioned also, it was quite a personality, she was a Herman. So Rebbe's an elephant would drive around Yerushalayim and the rest of the country in regal fashion in her trademark car, a magnificent white Lincoln Continental with tasseled curtains in the windows. Probably the only car like that in the country at the time. It was instantly recognizable wherever she went. An item that appeared in a Hamodia obituary was that Rabbi Elephant made his main fortune in a Scandinavian metal mining business. Maybe you would know more about that. Parenthetically again, I have no idea. I never heard of that. Close parentheses. Finally, the Rosh Hashiva hosted Rav Hutner, meaning Rabbi Elephant. Rav Mordechai Elephant hosted Rav Hutner in his home on the day before the infamous multiplane air hijacking. When asked later that week, what were his parting words to Rav Hutner? He answered half-smilingly, I wished him derech tzleicha. In other words, smooth, smooth sail, smooth traveling. Okay, that's enough about Rabbi Elephant. We'll get to the Mashgiach letters another day. We have to move on here. A lot of feedback in the Mashgiach episode, some nice stories from students of the Mir. Hopefully we'll get to it soon. In the meantime, you can enjoy the article that uh, Davi Safir and I have written in the Mishpacha magazine this week. Make sure to purchase it to get what I think is a very nice uh, tribute to the Meshkiach. And I tried to do as much as I could not to overlap with what I said in the podcast, so it's mostly new material, so you'll enjoy it. We get to Aaron Leib Steinman, finally. Um, wow, 12 and a half minutes in to this episode. And um, he was born, again, a great Torah leader, uh, of recent times, and he just passed away recently. I, you know, I met him a couple of times, as many as have many of our listeners. He was someone who lived among us till really recently. He had a very, very long life. He's 103 years old when he passed away. So we're going to stretch back to the, to his early years. As someone who is was only famous the last uh, 20, 30 years of his life, and the last 60 years of his life, he lived in B'nai Brak. So I'm only going to talk about the first 40-some-odd uh, years before he got to B'nai Brak. His early years, when he was mostly unknown, he grew up in Brisk. Now, Brisk at that time was in um, Poland. When he was born, it was still in Russia, but then it was in Poland. And it's a city. Even until, you, until today, you go to it, it's a city. It's a city in, in relative to Belarus. It's not a shtetl, that's what I mean. It's not a small, little, tiny uh, market town, uh, shtetl. It's it's a it's a city. It's a certain significant size. Lots of secularization and Zionism. Um, in our tours, when I go to Belarus, we go to Brisk. Sometimes there's nothing left to see. There's no. There's a, where the Beis Halevi, uh, the founder of the uh, Soloveitchik dynasty, as a rav of Brisk, he where he's buried. Unfortunately, it's a parking lot. We we know the spot where we go and we daven at that spot and we talk about it, but you can't see anything. It's completely destroyed. There is one the one one of the only Jewish things left in Brisk is that there's a statue of Menachem Begin, the only Brisk native to have won a Nobel Prize and to become a head of state. And Menachem Begin, of course, uh, grew up in in Brisk. Um, so it starts off in Russia, then it's Poland, today it's in Belarus. Revarin Leib's father was a Malamed teacher in a cheder for children. He was a shamish of a shul in Brisk. Um, and then Revarin Rav Leib described how there was the Tachkemoni elite cheder, which the better students went to. And it was belonged to the Mizrahi. That was the elite. That was the better cheder, the better learning. 
higher level. And then there was the regular kahal community cheder, which the worker, working class uh, citizens sent their children. And Rabbi Aaron Leib's father sent him to the kahal cheder, not because he didn't want it to be with, with, with affiliated with Mizrahi. That wasn't the reason. It wasn't because of any and Zionism was because he wanted to train him to that you go to the community, the regular one. You don't have to be with the elite and with the best, and uh, and uh, and you should be with a diverse Jewish population. From when you go to Cheder, and Rabbi Aaron Leib used to repeat that lesson of his father to uh, later on in his later years, uh, to the whole idea of there's the best, and we only accept the best in our school. And he very much did not like that, and he used his own childhood as, as, as an example. Later on, he moves on to, again, the local yeshiva, the yeshiva of Ramesh Sakalovsky. It was called Tairas Chesed in Brisk. Very interesting yeshiva. It was a bit of an anomaly because it was non-Valajan style. It was a local communal yeshiva. It was not a, 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 a supra community, meaning an a international yeshiva of, 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 of everywhere. It was pretty much local. Localized, and the rabbi of the town was in charge, which was an old-fashioned style yeshiva. And later, when Reb Chaim Brisker became the rabbi in Brisk, so he appointed Reb Simchazela Grieger, who became in charge of the yeshiva, who was the dyan of Brisk. Also, famous, you know, you know, I should probably do a episode on him. Maybe we'll do one soon. I think his yard site is coming up. If you want to sponsor that episode, so be in touch with me. Reb Simchazela Grieger, an amazing personality, and of course, of any other sponsorship and virtual tours, lectures, just be in touch with me about all those kinds of things, um, and uh, uh, but especially of this Rav Simcha Zelig uh, Riga. Um, later on, Rav Sakalovsky, the Imre Maisha, he wrote a very famous and prominent, well-used Sefer, the Imre Maisha, he becomes in charge of the yeshiva. He, he himself had married a wealthy uh, man's, uh, married into a wealthy family, uh, the daughter of a wealthy family, so he studied most of his life in a base medrash in Brisk. So when he lived there, and Reb Chaim appointed him to be the Rashid, he was very close um, with his Talmidim. Reb, Reb Steinman himself named his oldest son, Reb Moshe Steinman, who I know, uh, he named him after him, um, after his, his Rebbe. Later on, when Reb Moshe Sokolovsky passed away in 1931, so the Rosh Shiva was appointed Reb Yisrael Chaim Kaplan, who was the son-in-law of Reb Yerucham Levavis, the Mir Mashkiach. And later on, he became the Rashiva, the Mashkiach in Beis Medrash Ali in Amansi when he escaped at the beginning of the war. So he becomes the, the Rashiva there also. Then Rabbi Shaiman spends short stints in Kobrin by Rapesach Pruskin and in Klatsk by Rabbi Cutler, each one for about six months or a year, but he kept on coming back to Teres Chesed to the Yeshiva in, in, uh, in, um, in Brisk. He was close when he was local. He was close to the Briskarov, Rabbevel Soloveitchik. He was close to the Simchazela Grieger, the Dayan and Brisk. But eventually he got uh, caught up in the Polish army draft. Now, all yeshiva guys had the issue of the Polish army draft. So what did everyone do? It wasn't just unique to him. Uh, so there, everyone tried to dodge the draft. And that, that becomes the story of the yeshiva world in Europe. First, before World War I, dodging the Russian army draft. And post-World War I, dodging the Polish army draft or the Lithuanian army draft. And... When given that historical context, we understand a little bit about the 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 world of today, where the idea of the yeshiva guys, uh, you know, trying to stay out of the army draft, it has a lot of historical 
uh, background to it also, but that's another topic. I just wanted to point that out. Either way, so some eventually got drafted. Baron Leib's brother himself got drafted. Um, and other there were there were stories of yeshiva students who were drafted. The Polish army wasn't nearly as bad as the Tsarist Russian army. It was only the Polish army. And but um, he there was there were those who who once their siblings were drafted, so they didn't get drafted. There were those who were an only child, so they weren't drafted because of that. There were those who were able to get out for health reasons, bribery. Name changes, all kinds of ways, attempts to get certificates to Palestine or to immigrate to other countries. Nothing worked. He tried everything. In fact, he was born with the name Steinman, and he changed his name to Steinemann, added an N, in order to con- you know, pretend that he was a, an only child. And this way he would get out of the draft. That didn't work. And he tried to get a certificate to Palestine. It also didn't work. So when all else fell, failed, he ran away to Switzerland. And that's how he ended up in Switzerland in 1937. Summer of 1937, he's 23 years old. He leaves Poland forever. And he comes to the Eitz Chaim Yeshiva in Montreux, in Switzerland, where the Rosh Yeshiva was Rebelio, Rabbi Achmil Elio, who's known as Rebelio Bachko, who was a student of the altar of Navardic and married a Sternbuch, married a sister of Rabbi Isaac Sternbuch, whose wife was the famous Recha Sternbuch, so, um, so, so he once you marry a Sternbuch, so you become part of the clan, and you have to move to Switzerland, where they all are. And he founded this yeshiva, Eitz Chaim. Later on, in post-war, Rabbi Chil Yaakov Weinberg, the Sri Asia, was to live out his post-war years in that yeshiva, because his close student, Rabbi Shol Weingart, was a son-in-law of Rabbi Bachko, and um, and uh, I think there's like a, some sort of legend that Rabbi Aaron Leib knew Rabbi Chil Yaakov Weinberg in those years, but it's obviously not true because they were in Switzerland different years. Uh, Rabbi Aaron Leib left in 1945 and uh, Rabbi Chil Yaakov Weinberg was only liberated. He survived the Holocaust, he was only liberated from the prison camp he was in in 1945 and then came to Switzerland. So they did not cross paths at all in Switzerland. Either way, Rabbi Leo Bachko's son, Rabbi Meisha Bachko, took over after his father's passing in the 1950s. He eventually moves the yeshiva to Yushalayim in the 1980s. And they're both of these Bachkos are buried in the Sanhedria Cemetery in Yushalayim, which is also a nice tour and easy location right near Ramadashkol. I sometimes do that whenever uh, touring gets back uh, to normal. So the ones who accompanied um, Rabar and Leib Steinman leaving Brisk and going to Switzerland are Rabbi Meisha Salavechik, who's the son of Rabbi Israel Gershon Salavechik, the oldest son of Rabbi Chaim Brisker, and who eventually settled in in, uh, in Switzerland and lived there until his passing in the 1990s. And Leib Glickson, who was also a grandson of Rabbi Chaim, the, the son of, of Rabbi Chaim Brisker's daughter and son-in-law of Hirsch Glickson. Unfortunately, Leib Glickson returned to Warsaw to his parents and he got killed by the Nazis. Um, so they were essentially hired to be re- rebbies in the yeshiva. They were teachers. They taught the young um, students who came from Germany and Switzerland. Um, they were exposed to the greatness of the Lithuanian yeshiva world through these rebbeim. And eventually, um, once the war begins, there's Baron Leib experiences uh, sojourns through Switzerland. He's, he falls ill for quite a bit of time. He's sick. And then he has to do slave labor, paving roads, because he's considered a, uh, a refugee, a Polish citizen refugee, and he was arrested at one point and, uh, you know, imprisoned in this, in this work camp by the Swiss 
government um, as a refugee, as a suspicious, as you know, as a spy maybe, and um, and he you know, had some ups and downs during the warriors in neutral Switzerland when there was everything was essentially at peace and and okay. Now at this time during this time he spent some time with Rebeliovachko's brother-in-law. And sister-in-law Yitzchak and uh, Isaac and, and Rachel Sternbach. He was a guest at their home, and she sent him. She used to send him on some rescue missions to, to bring forged documents a few times to the border. So he was involved in that as well at the behest of Rachel Sternbach. Um, in 1944, Rachel Sternbach, who by, had gotten to know him, um, he, she introduces him to a, another refugee named Tamar Kornfeld. She was alone. Her her family had stayed behind outside of Switzerland. She, most of her family was was killed. Her, she was reunited after the war with her mother, who had survived. And um, Rabar and Leib at this time was thirty years old, and she was older than him. She was three or four years older than him. Today they talk about how they try. There's all these organizations trying to encourage people to marry. Uh, to to marry not not necessarily of their age to marry boys I don't I don't remember boys should marry older girls wherever it goes I don't follow all the uh, all the propaganda but uh, Rabar and Leib would be a great role model the, the advertisements should use him if they would know a little history that that he went ahead and married someone who was significantly older and they were both old she you know so it was a big shidduch crisis he was thirty she was almost thirty five and they got married and they had a wonderful family and a wonderful marriage and. I remember uh, being Menachem Avl or Baron Leib when his wife passed away. She predeceased him. She was older than him. Um, and uh, Rabaran Leib himself was without any family. Um, so his hosts in Switzerland escorted him to the Chuppah. Um, Rabbi Yaakov Erlanger, Rabbi Leib Schubenfeld, Revolf Rosengarten, who was later the host of the Briskarov in Switzerland. Um, Rabaran Leib was the sole survivor of his family. His entire family was wiped out by the Nazis in Poland. Um, and later, so now he's married, he has to make a living, he tutors children in, in Lugano, in Switzerland. In 1945, at the end of the war, he moves to Israel, and he spends about a half a year in Petach Tikva, in a kail called Kail Tairas Eret Yisrael. Fascinating story also. Uh, each place that he went to is really using him as a prism to describe institutions and people, personalities that may not be so well known. Um, there's it's founded in 1934 by, by Rabbi Stroll Zissel Dvorich, who was a famous Labatka Talmud, who was involved in a myriad of projects and initiatives over many decades with Slabatka Yeshiva and other places in Israel and back in Lithuania. And other people, a few people, Rabbi Stroll Zissel Dvorich and a few others, they create this kail to study the halacha relevant to the land of Israel, Tairas Eretz Yisrael. It was the center of Taira life, along with the Lamji Yeshiva in, in Petach Tikva, those two Torah institutions were the center of Torah life in Petach Tikva for many years. And they had an amazing lineup of future Torah leaders who studied in this Kailo Tairas Eretz Yisrael over the decades. Remich Liud Levkovich, Reb Chaim Shol Karelitz, who was Reb Aaron Leib's Chavrusa in those years, um, Reb Yisaf Rzavsky, Reb Zalman Rotberg, Reb Chaim Kreisworth, Reb Ruvain Fine, Reb Baruch Shemin Solomon, Reb Shlomo Volba, Reb Arya Pomeranchik, I mean, and the list goes on and on and on. I'm not going to go through every single name, but really an amazing place. And um, during this time, he gets to know the Chazaynish. And in 1946, he gets recommended by the Chazaynish to go to Kfar Saba, not far from Tel Aviv. It's right next to Ranana today, uh, a little north of Tel Aviv, Herzliya, Ranana, that area. Um, 
and in it's in uh, there's a yeshiva, a yeshiva called Yeshiva Chafetz Chaim Kfar Saba, and it's named after the Chafetz Chaim, and it's a yeshiva that existed in the 1940s and 50s. It was founded by the Tzeire Agudas Yisrael, the young Agudas Yisrael movement, and it was, a, it was founded as a yeshiva for the new yeshiv, which is why it was founded in the heart of the new yeshiv in Kfar Saba. Kfar Saba at the time was a center of Agudas Yisrael, Poyale Agudas Yisrael, Tzeire Agudas Yisrael. It was like one of the that and Tel Aviv were the centers of, of the Aguda, especially the Pele Aguda in the new Yishuv. There are a lot of other stories of Kfar Saba at that time and, and Yishuvim that started in Kfar Saba. And maybe that's the topic for another time when we speak more about the Pele Agudas Yisrael. But either way, this is the Yeshiva Chavetz Chaim Kfar Saba of the Tzirei Agudas Yisrael, Rabbi Shesalavechik, Rabbi Leib's partner, who had now by this time come to Eretz Yisrael before he would return to Switzerland. Um, he was involved in opening this Yeshiva, Rabbi David Rotberg, Rabbi Rotberg's brother was involved in opening this yeshiva, and the Chazanish pushes Rosh Steinman to become the Rosh Shiva. And amazingly enough, in 1952, several years later, the, the Chavetz Chaim yeshiva was a yeshiva katana for younger boys. In 1952, the, a, they opened up a yeshiva gedayla. What was that yeshiva called? Yeshiva Srib Chaim Oizer. So the yeshiva katana is named for the Chavetz Chaim, the yeshiva gedayla is named for Reb Chaim Oizer, and Reb Aaron Leib is upgraded to be the Rosh Yeshiva of the yeshiva gedayla. And uh, those yeshivas eventually closed down in the late 1950s after Baron Leib leaves. He was the spirit of the place. In 1956, um, he was hired by the Rav to be the Rosh Yeshiva of the Panavish Yeshiva Katana, the younger students in B'nai Brak. So he moved to B'nai Brak in 1956, and that uh, launched his B'nai Brak uh, career. Now, why did he only leave then in 1956? He wanted to leave earlier. He didn't like Farsaba. He felt that B'nai Brak was more religious and better environment for his children, who he wanted to raise them. And the Chazanish didn't let him. The Chazanish said, you're needed in Kfar Saba. You're doing Kiruv. And the Chazanish was a Kiruv pioneer. This I heard, I believe I heard it at that shiva when I visited him. Uh, uh, one of his children was probably saying it in, 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 for his wife. I remember, it stuck in my mind from back then. I couldn't look it up. Well, not, I don't even know if it's written anywhere. And the Chazanish didn't let him. He said, you're needed in Kfar Saba. You're educating. You're doing Kirov. You're helping. You're building. You are needed there. Don't leave Kfar Saba. Don't come to B'nai Brak. And what's going to be with your kids? Don't worry about your kids. And so the Ryan Leib simply waited. It was following, you know, the Chazanish was already gone by 1956 for several years already. So he was able to leave. And uh, and he came to B'nai Brak where he settled down. And as we say, the rest is history. So this was Yehudi Gabriel with Jewish History, Jewish history Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudiGaber.com for questions, comments, uh, sponsorships, lectures, virtual tours, tours. You can follow uh, Jewish History Soundbites on, uh, subscribe, excuse me, to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite pod- podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at Soundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.